The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Spork Box. Here are your headlines today. The U.S. has reported nearly 90,000 new cases in the last 24 hours, bringing the total number of infections to almost 8.7 million. This after the country saw a record rise in cases on Friday as outbreaks continue to flare up across several states. Several aides close to Vice President Mike Pence, including his chief of staff, have tested positive for the virus. But Pence maintained his campaign plans over the weekend with just over a week until the 3rd of November election. NBC News' Kelly O'Donnell will bring us more on this later on. skies ahead for SAP as the German software giant cuts its 2020 outlook on weakening cloud revenues. We speak to the CEO in half an hour's time. And Jack Ma halts Ant's much-anticipated IPO as the largest in history. As reports suggest, the listing could top $35 billion with the official pricing expected this week. The U.S. has reported nearly 90,000 new cases in the last 24 hours. That brings the total number of infections to almost 8.7 million. All this after the country saw a record rise in cases on Friday as outbreaks continue to flare up across several states. Well, several aides close to Vice President Mike Pence, including his chief of staff, have tested positive for the virus. But Pence has maintained his campaign plans over the weekend with just over a week until the November 3rd election. NBC News' Kelly O'Donnell has the details. The vice president's mask. Tonight, an outward sign of another COVID hotspot at the White House. North Carolina is Trump country. At least five Pence associates are COVID positive, including his chief of staff, Mark Short, said to have mild symptoms. I think he's doing well, so hopefully uh, the prognosis will be really good. Longtime outside political advisor Marty Obst and others unnamed. Despite close contact, Pence is not in quarantine. Aides say he and the second lady tested negative again today. So he headed to North Carolina. Top White House officials defend that choice, calling candidate Pence an essential worker. Under CDC guidance, essential workers should wear masks and keep distance, but are not required to stay home 14 days. It's an essential worker. Uh, we're talking about people going out to vote. We're talking about people... Uh, uh, essential workers going out and campaigning. Today, the president got up close with many maskless voters at an apple orchard in Maine. That's great, isn't it? While in New Hampshire... You know who got it? I did. Can the president said nothing about new infections on Pence's team, while ignoring evidence COVID is spreading. We're rounding the turn. Even without the vaccines, we're rounding the turn. It's going to be over. Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows conceded the White House is focused on treatment 
not prevention. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation Why aren't we going to get control of the beca- pandemic? Be- because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why- that was NBC News' Kelly O'Donnell with that story. Well, let's just uh, move over to U.S. futures and how the U.S. market is setting up for the trading session. The beginning of a brand-new trading week, and you can see red flashing up on the boards, suggesting a reversal. There was a bit of a mixed picture Friday session as we saw some selling on the Dow and the S&P just moving positive by the end of the session as investors weighed up. Uh, still disappointment over that uh, mixed negotiation between the Republicans and Democrats messaging around whether a stimulus deal will be forthcoming in the next couple of days or whether it will take much longer than that. So uh, futures perched weaker before the start of the trading session. Juliana. Thanks very much, Karen. Well, the stimulus is certainly in focus in Washington this week, or the potential stimulus, uh, should say. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi expects White House officials to respond early this week to her concerns over a massive new stimulus plan. She added that talks remain stalled over key issues like testing and jobless benefits. Meanwhile, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows claimed he has not seen a proposed spending bill blaming Democrats for the impasse. Senate Republicans have voted to advance the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, setting up her confirmation early this week. The motion passed largely along party lines, with only two Republicans joining Democrats in opposition. Barrett was nominated by President Trump following the death of former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last month and is expected to cement a conservative majority on the high court. Well, to discuss this in more detail and uh, uh, other things that are going on around Washington, Harry Lipman is a constitutional law professor and former U.S. attorney and joins us now. Um, great to have you with us, Harry. So looking at what we learned yesterday after the Senate vote to progress Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, we only saw two Senate Republicans actually cross party lines and side with the Democrats. Weigh in for us on what you think the Republicans are thinking here. Is this more about securing another conservative voice on the bench for the long term? Or is this more about trying to gain support for President Trump and those incumbent senators that are facing a tough race come November 3rd? You know, it's probably both, but certainly the first point, the securing a hammerlock on a conservative majority for decades is the thing that I think they are most focused on. And indeed, there's every indication that there's some short-term hit to their electoral interests. That's why two people didn't vote to advance, and yet they may well vote to confirm her. They're ones in very tight election races, but but the Republicans are certain that she's going to be confirmed tomorrow or as soon as the vote comes up. There, it, there is the possibility, of course, of a short-term shot in the arm for President Trump in an election-related litigation. There are a couple very big cases coming in addition in the first couple months of the term. But the big story here is a absolute uh, supermajority for the conservatives for decades to come unless the Democrats do something very extreme if and when they control the Senate and House. 
On that point, it was interesting earlier this month when Judge Amy Coney Barrett did, she was quizzed in a series of hearings in front of the Senate, and she actually wouldn't be drawn on some of the major issues like Obamacare, like climate change, like change like voting by mail. So yes, we, we understand that she will be adding a conservative voice, but she actually didn't give a huge amount away. What do we know for sure about the way she will lead from the bench should she uh, progress to that stage? It's true. I mean, she gave nothing away, which is, it's there, it's, uh, traditional for candidates to be Delphic, but she was completely silent. And what that really reflected was that the hyperpartisanship was baked in. She had a narrow edge, but a certain edge, so she really didn't have to take any chances. You're right, of course, what that leaves is guesswork, but educated guesswork based on the things she's written as a scholar, as a judge, and the kinds of views she's espoused. And there's very strong indication that she will be a staunch conservative. Justice Scalia, for whom she clerked, is her judicial idol. And uh, there's a series of issues, social issues in particular, abortion in particular, where the likelihood is that she will be uh, part of a five-person uh, impermeable majority, and that will will be for decades to come on all kinds of uh, issues that it may be hard to anticipate sitting here today. Professor, I was struck by an article over the weekend. Reuters had done some analysis on previous decisions that the Supreme Court nominee had made and effectively found in her three years as a federal appeals court judge, Barrett had consistently sided with police or prison guards who were accused of using excessive force, which I think is a fascinating set of events if you consider the, the dis public discourse in the United States, uh, the uh, points of tension around uh, racial tension, good issues around coronavirus protests as well. We we've seen uh, the ramifications around excessive police force in a number of cases in particular. What do you make of uh, how significant that her rulings in the past have been in this particular case? Yeah, so I think that's a good example where she's sort of in lockstep. I mean, she was chosen and curated even, you could say, carefully over the last 10 years. They know who they're getting and they were very careful to uh, analyze who she is and what she's done. She's also been uh, unusually lax about the principle of stare decisis. That is, she's made it uh, clear that she wouldn't hesitate to overturn certain rulings. She's made it clear, though her religious beliefs aren't part of this, nevertheless, she believes life begins at conception, which makes it hard, as you can imagine, to sustain abortion statutes. She is definitely a fellow traveler with the very narrow stratum of hyper-conservative justices from which uh, Trump has carefully selected each of his last three nominees. Professor, I want to talk more widely about the U.S. election just over a week to go, and there has been much concern about how voting is administered, given all the challenges with coronavirus at this point. What do you make of the early voting that we've witnessed so far, about 58 million Americans so far already casting their vote? 
Right. It's a pro, it's really a prodigious number. And it indicates it's much more, for instance, than four years ago. And I think it indicates unusual interest in this election. It may also indicate some measure of insecurity with the traditional uh, means of casting your ballot, even in person. Uh, it's hard to say Trump himself has uh, tried to uh, suggest that mail-in voting is insecure, and yet you have, as you say, nearly 60 million votes. Uh, And especially in certain places like Texas, I think it indicates a really unusually large turnout. You could analyze that either way, of course, and 2016 is a sobering lesson for people uh, jumping to conclusions. But generally, that would indicate a a a a preference for the for Biden the challenger that those kinds of numbers Harry, one of the concerns around this election is that if the result is too close to call or if a number of different scenarios play out, we could see a contested election result. If we do see that, how is it likely to compare to the contested result in 2000 with Al Gore and George W. Bush? And also, if you can just link for us uh, the first part of our conversation in the Supreme Court and the uh, potential appointment of Judge Amy Coney Barrett and how that factors in if we do get a contested result. Right. I mean, Trump said expressly, as did the leader of the Senate, we want her there to break ties. We want her there to be able to uh, to have the court render a decision. But of course, the subtext is to render a decision in favor of President Trump. There will be screams for her to recuse herself for that reason, but it's unlikely to happen. And you do have the cataclysmic possibility that would make Bush v. Gore really look like a uh, a baby ride uh, if in this election somehow the Supreme Court, newly constituted as a conservative majority, delivers the election in controversial terms to Trump. One thing is certain, there are hordes of lawyers preparing on all sides, and there's every reason to think with the virus and other ballot issues and the Republicans already complaining about mail-in voting that some races, some Senate races, and of course the Senate is up for grabs here, some Congress races could be uh, contested and the lawyers will be in there battling. The sort of uh, rule that's come in the United States lately is vote first, litigate second, and then the almost imponderably Uh, cataclysmic possibility that the presidency itself comes down to that as it did in 2000. That that would be a, a seismic event for the country and the court for certain. Harry, really appreciate you joining us this morning. Great to speak with you. Harry Lippman is a constitutional law professor and former U.S. attorney. Karen, over to you. Juliana, let's circle back to the market action we saw Friday. Very low volume session. That was worth noting as well. Not a lot of transactions ticking over, but investors at this point are a little bit more cautious in the session. You can see that reflected for the Dow, a reversal by about a tenth of a percent versus a modest pickup on other key parts of the market for the S&P and the Nasdaq. A huge focus this week on tech earnings later on. But the markets, uh, as they wrapped up Friday session, still focused 
on the stimulus negotiations taking place behind the scenes and some of the caution too around a fresh rise in coronavirus cases globally. So the market, as you can see, very much trapped in a range. What we had over the course of the week, though, losses for the Dow to the extent of almost 1% reversal for the S&P 500, about half of a percent for the Nasdaq down about 1% too. So it was a losing week for equities over the course of the trade. But on U.S. Treasuries, just circling over to that, because there has been a lot of U.S. positioning around the election. And you can see the market did uh, price this in on the bond markets. The yield curve, uh, the highest since June the 10th is what we saw in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, 0.81%, where we climbed to uh, currently 0.87%, where we got to uh, was one of the highest levels since early June last week. This is the markets now saying... We've got this blue wave theory where there's going to be a democratic sweep. Some are repositioning, some of the banks are repositioning their bets around that. So uh, you've got more positioning going into the bond market as a result to reflect uh, chances that you will have a steeper yield curve. In terms of the oil market, it was uh, also a loss-making week for this commodity complex. We did reverse over the course of the week in session. You can see more negativity. We're down more than 2%. And as we continue to focus on coronavirus cases, this has been a negative story right from the very beginning for oil and the demand story. Asian markets, Hong Kong is shut today, but uh, this is the play across the rest of the region. We are focusing on a number of central bank meetings this week. Bank of Japan expected to hold fire, but still a focus for many on the markets, along with the Bank of Canada and the ECB. But uh, one of the other big um, points of uh, interest for the region has been the conversation held by Chinese authorities, Chinese leaders, about what takes place for the economy over the next few years as it, uh, of course, tries to recover from the pandemic but faces these U.S. tensions. So the market concentrating on that. You can see Chinese stocks down 1.1%. The opening calls in Europe as we get set up for the trading week, we are looking negative as well. Very soggy start anticipated on the back of what was a decent Friday session. We saw solid gains of six-tenths of a percent across on the stocks Europe 600, but it was actually firmer on some of the other key markets Markets, particularly the UK that uh, bounced about 1.3%. But uh, you can see uh, the market is looking to, to give back a little bit of territory. Well, coming up on the show, virus restrictions tighten across Europe as infections soar on the continent, with France and Spain passing 1 million cases. We'll cross to Milan for more on Italy's new measures right after this. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. Let's get into the latest coronavirus case numbers around Europe. The UK has recorded more than 42,000 new coronavirus cases over the weekend. Some areas in the north of England, where infection rates were highest, have moved to the strictest level of prevention measures. Meanwhile, the British government is considering reducing the current quarantine period of 14 days. White House chief infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci says the U.S. has been inconsistent in closing down after the initial outbreak of COVID-19. Speaking on the BBC's Andrew Marr, Dr. Fauci explained why he thought both the U.K. and the U.S. were hit harder than others. It's a question of a uniform adherence 
to the public health measures, which we did not do that well here in the United States. So we're in a very precarious position as we're entering into a time when climate will dictate that we'll have to do things more indoor versus outdoor. You know, unfortunately, I, I, I'm sorry to see what I'm uh, viewing from a distance, what I'm seeing in the UK, in that, you know, after getting hit pretty badly the way we did, you went down to a pretty low level, but now you're starting to escalate in the same manner that we are here. France hit new, two consecutive records for daily coronavirus cases on Saturday and Sunday as the country reported a total of around 97,000 new infections over the weekend. This comes after the French government expanded its overnight curfew to include 38 more regions. President Emmanuel Macron had said the health measures could last for at least six weeks, with France becoming the second European country after Spain to mark one million cases. Spain has also introduced a nighttime curfew after declaring a national state of emergency. Under the new measures, local authorities can prohibit travel between regions. Last week, the country became the first in Europe to surpass one million total cases. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez warned that while this does not mean a full lockdown, people should still avoid close contact as much as possible. The battle we already know will be difficult, but with social discipline, with resistance, with unity and a spirit of victory, we will achieve it again. There is no total lockdown in this new state of emergency, but the more we stay at home and the fewer contacts we have, the more protected we will be and the more we will protect our loved ones and the health of our society. We don't need to approve measures to oblige us to do what we need to do. We know what we need to do. Less mobility, less contacts, and the fewer possibilities a virus will have of infecting us. Therefore, let's stay at home as much as possible. Italy's tightest restrictions since May take effect today. Bars and restaurants must close by 6pm CET, while gyms and theatres will shut down completely. Let's get out to Claudia for more. Claudia, I was reading over the weekend that there are some fears that the coronavirus is now sweeping to some of the poor regions of Italy, which is slightly different from the first wave of infections. But just walk us through what you're now seeing in Italy and how this time is slightly different. Well, first of all, this uh, lockdown is being called a mini lockdown. And as you were saying, it's the harshest measures that have been put into place uh, since uh, the end of the lockdown, which was in early May. This is the third time in 10 days that measures have been put into place, slowly reaching this sort of peak level of measures. Now, Italians were very nervous going into the weekend, of course, knowing that something was going to come out. And yesterday afternoon, it was announced just to go through what the measures are actually imposing on Italians is that uh, bars and restaurants have to close at six o'clock in the afternoon. Theaters and cinemas are closed. Gyms are closed. 75% of uh, high schoolers will be uh, staying home. Uh, while elementary and middle school children will continue to go to school. Uh, of course, what the government is trying to avoid is a closing down or a slowing down of the economy. Uh, some sectors inevitably, as you can see from the footage, are being affected because it is, of course, going uh, to hit hard in the hotels and the bars and the restaurants and the gyms. Uh, this will take a toll also on retail as Italians are being urged to stay home. You can still move around freely, but the government is uh, insisting 
you leave your home only for work or school or for emergencies. As for curfew, this is being left up to the regions. Only three regions have now imposed a curfew. Uh, it's at 11 o'clock in the evening until 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and that is, of course, one of the regions being hit is my region, which is Lombardy. The curve is worrying. The healthcare system is once again under pressure. And so, of course, this is why the government is moving. Conte, uh, in speaking uh, yesterday, was saying that he would like to try and, and get to Christmas with cases under control. And so that's why he's pushing uh, for this uh, uh, mini lockdown for this one month. Just to give you an idea of the numbers, you did go through some of those European numbers. Remember that Italy has the uh, second highest death rate uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, almost 40, almost 38,000 uh, deaths. Uh, right now, we are seeing 13% of all swabs being positive. And so this is an increase definitely in numbers with 21,273 new infections yesterday uh, were registered. Uh, so the intensive care units are once again under pressure. It's important to try uh, and avoid what happened uh, just months ago with the need to go to a total lockdown. Uh, let's uh, quickly listen to what Giuseppe Conte had to say to Italians when he announced these new measures. If I were on the other side today, I would certainly have reason to grieve. I too would probably feel anger towards the government's measures. However, I say wait and see what the economic measures are that we have decided on, because I believe they are very conspicuous or at least adequate economic support. So the protest is there, but what I can hope for is to be careful because clearly there are some groups, even antagonists, let's say professionals, who are trying to fuel the tensions. Of course, Italians' nerves are frazzled as this second lockdown uh, comes with uh, knowing what happened in the first lockdown. And of course, with an economic situation that is suffering, we don't know what kind of aid Conte is actually going to give to the sectors. But just to give you an idea of what's going on in Milan, Milan counts for 8% of Italy's population and produces 13% of uh, Italy's total GDP. Uh, keep in mind that on a normal uh, day, 75% of hotels are full. The occupation rate right now in hotels in Milan is only 20%. And Italy's economy is made up of fairs, of conventions, conferences. Its core business is also uh, hotels and shopping, which means restaurants and bars. Uh, and uh, this has really hit Milan as a city. It's lost 10 billion euros of revenue so far. So for a big city, city like Italy, uh, this is really going to uh, affect. This mini lockdown is going to take another big toll on the economy. And remember, also, in addition to the measures that have been put into place on a national level. Of course, Milan in particular is also facing that 11 o'clock curfew, which means that for, uh, you know, for, for a lot of businesses, uh, this really does uh, strongly affect the economy. So this is, I guess, the first official day of this new lockdown, uh, and Italians are definitely taking it a, a little less calmly than they were in the first lockdown. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.